Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Many of you will know uh, or recognise the face, at least, of Sophie Okanedo, uh, a fantastic actor who has won numerous awards, but she says her big break... Uh, was unexpected. In fact, she says she was not dressed for a life-changing experience. Uh, Sophie is at Kenwood House on Hampstead Heath, which many of us will have seen, either from the outside over the last two years, or if you got there before then, you'd have actually got to go around the, uh, the galleries and so on. And Sophie said she had old tracksuit bottoms on and a casual top. She was there with her mum when the phone went, uh, and it was her agent. Uh, she said it took a while for her to work out what her agent was saying because it sounded more like choking than speaking. But eventually she managed to work out the words and the words were, Sophie, you have been nominated for an Oscar. This, of course, is the phone call that any actor longs for or dreams for. This was for her supporting role in the wonderful uh, film Hotel uh, Rwanda. Uh, so Sophie turns to her mum and they both go wild with excitement. Now, the security guards at Kenwood House are well-versed in the skills of security, but poorly versed in the skills of emotional intelligence. So they come straight over to them and they say, you've got to quieten down or we have to escort you out of the museum. At which point Sophie's mum screams so that everybody can hear them. I don't care, she said. My daughter has just been nominated for an Oscar. Cue applause from everybody else in the gallery as the security guards lead them out of uh, Kenwood House. And uh, I must say that when I came across uh, that, uh, what for me at least is a memorable story, I was reminded too actually of the way that God works in our lives very often. Long periods of difficulty and delay and then suddenly a moment when things seem very different. And I want to reflect on this this morning from the story of Joseph. And to give you an added uh, piece of background or, or context for this, uh, Joe has just been talking about the church retreat uh, coming in August. Join us if you can. It really is wonderful. Last summer, when we were there, Barry uh, and Ange Catlett, Barry would normally be here on a Sunday. They're uh, away in South Africa at the moment. But Barry got up at the retreat and he said these words. He said, I'm reminded of the story of Lazarus. Christchurch London, it's time to take off the grave clothes. And Barry compared this with two years of pandemic and the sort of accretions and things which feel, felt like they were resting on us or felt like we were clothed with, that he said it's time to start to take off. Two weeks ago, the Christchurch London staff team are at Ashburnham Court. The 20th service who worked for Christchurch London had two days away where we spent time with each other. We were seeking God and each session... We felt the Lord in very different ways essentially say the same thing. What are the things that have attached themselves, the, the ways in which our thinking has changed, the way in which we've created habits that are not life-giving for us, but that have entered our lives over the last couple of years? And can we identify those and start to think about ways of thinking and acting which would change them? So these we feel like these are important things which we feel the Spirit is whispering to the whole church at this point in time, uh, and gives some added context for what I've got to say this morning. 
Uh, the story I want to refer to is in Genesis chapter 41. Simply for the sake of time, we're not going to read the whole passage. We'll just go to a few verses in a few minutes. But let me just remind you of Joseph's story. Many of you will know of it, but basically think precocious young man has two dreams. In his dreams, his whole family, his parents and brothers are all going to bow down to him. Mm-hmm. Just what may be precocious teenager fancies, who knows. But the whole way in which the story is then written out leaves you and I as the readers asking one question. Is there any chance that these dreams of Joseph's are ever going to come true? And as you read it, you start to think this is highly unlikely. We find out that Joseph is not just part of a dysfunctional family, but, um, but a bitter, envious, angry family. So that when his ten brothers get a chance to get rid of him, the discussion is basically over two options. Do we kill him or do we sell him into slavery? <laughs> I mean, there's not exactly any filial loyalty in that setup. I wonder what the intensity of that sort of anger from your brothers, what sort of effect that would have had on Joseph's spirit, what sort of effect that's had on your spirit or my spirit, if that's your family background. Not only that, but he moves from favored son, who can do pretty much whatever he wants, to slave in Egypt, strange culture, strange food, strange everything, and losing his most basic freedoms. Are these dreams ever going to come true? He's a slave. He does well in the household that he's in. He gets promoted. He's now doing very well. And then his boss's wife takes a liking to him. She makes advances. He turns them down. She, as Shakespeare said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And she accuses him of attempted rape. We know actually that Potiphar, her husband, sees that he was innocent. If he'd been guilty, if he'd been regarded as guilty, he would have been killed. But actually, he's put into prison. But he's back down at the bottom this time, not just a slave, but stuck away in the dark where nobody else could possibly see him. He slowly rises again, though, in responsibility. And Pharaoh, one night, has two dreams, which he doesn't understand. One of his courtiers, Pharaoh's courtiers, remembers, oh, there was this guy in prison who knew about dreams and how to understand them and interpret them. Joseph gets called out in a remarkable moment where he goes from prison to palace in under 12 hours. And he stands before Pharaoh as we pick up uh, the passage um, Pharaoh has told him, I've had these dreams. Joseph said the dreams are or mean this. They mean that there's seven years of abundance coming. During this time, your grain houses will be overflowing. But, he says, Pharaoh, be careful, because after the seven years of abundance, the seven years of famine, you are going to need some of that abundance in order to get through the years of drought, the years of need. Everyone should save a fifth of what they bring in in order to get them through those seven years. Pharaoh doesn't doubt for a moment that Joseph has said the truth, and he says, well, who could administer such a thing? I'm Pharaoh. I've got too many things on my plate. I need somebody else. And then he looks at Joseph, and we pick it up in verse 38 of Genesis 41. It says this, So Pharaoh asked them, his courtiers, Can we find anyone like this man, Joseph, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, 
There's no one as discerning or as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. How extraordinary to go from being in prison to hearing the words, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. There's so much that we could draw from this story. But let me start here. That God, that Joseph is not unique in being given promises many years before they were fulfilled. In fact, if we were to do a survey of scripture, we would find that time and time again, this is how God works. He drops things into our hearts and to our spirits, which, year, which over the years come to play an important role. In fact, the biblical term when these things come about, when these promises are fulfilled, is that God exalts his people. It basically means he lifts them up and puts them in a place where they get to do the things that they were made or designed to do. You have been made and designed to serve God in a general sense. We all have. But sometimes and there's moments in our lives where we feel like this is what I'm specifically, this is why I've been made. This is what I'm wired to do. And when the Bible talks about being exalted or lifted up, it's talking about those sorts of times. So this sense of promises that God presses in is right throughout the scriptures. We only need to get to the 12th chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12. And we find this couple, infertile, impossible to have children. So what does God say to promise them? I will give you a child who will be a family, who will become a people, who will bless the nations of the earth. No small promises there. Or Moses born into slavery, with all the mindset that goes with that, of victimization and limitation. And yet the word of promise for him is, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt and into a land flowing with milk and honey. Then there was Joshua, the young man, who is facing a river in flood and walled cities. And the promise is, I will give you the cities and I will take you through the river. If that's young man Joshua, then old man Caleb, he waits 45 years for his promises before he's given the land that God had promised him. There was the widow who who was preparing to die because she had no more food or olive oil. And Elisha says to her, God says to you, you keep pouring the oil out of the implement, the pot. And as long as you keep pouring, I will keep providing the oil in order to keep you alive. There was the old man Simeon. And the old woman, Anna, who were waiting at the temple, longing for what they called the consolation of Israel. They were concerned for their people who were in sorrow and in debt and in need. And they knew that one was coming who would change everything. Simeon was able to say, I've seen him. I can now rest in peace. I know that God has fulfilled the promise he put in my life. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had all sorts of promises given. Just read those early chapters of the Gospels about her son who was to be the one who would exalt and bring down nations. And when Paul was wondering, do I stay in Corinth and get this church started, or should I go somewhere else? He had a vision in the night. And the vision was, there are many people for you in this city. Stay. So it comes at all sorts of times. It comes when you're young. It comes when you're old. It comes when you're single. It comes when you're married. It comes when you're starting churches. It comes when you're administering nations. And it comes at all sorts of other times as well. So, Watch out, because you never know 
when God is going to want to speak that sort of thing into your heart. In fact, let me turn that to a question for you. Do you have a sense of God's promises for you? Things that you carry deep in your heart. Maybe they have to be pulled out at this point in time from the back of the wardrobe. They need to be dusted down. They need to blown off. They need bringing center stage in your mind again. They can be promises for future ministry in the church. They can be promises for people to come to faith or for the future of your children. They can be promises for your calling or contribution. Not just in the church, but in whichever part of society you are serving in. Remember, Joseph was a civil servant, uh, not a church minister. Sometimes they're promises for our church. One of the things that I want to share with you when we get to do why the sermon, why I come to church in central London, is some of the promises that I believe God has given Philippa and I and this service for church in the center of London. This isn't just man's idea. Well, I fancy going here. Uh, Bell, with all respect, don't fancy Mile End. But, you know, or, well, I'm not saying it's just personal choice. There's something more than that about that for each of our services, uh, wherever they are. Maybe you've got a sense of promises for this nation or your nation or for this city. Now, you may say, no, 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 city, nation, those sorts of promises, they're beyond my pay grade. You're like, I'm doing the personal ones. Well, just remember that God seems to be indiscriminate in terms of who he speaks to about the life of nations in the scriptures. In my devotional time, I'm reading Amos at the moment, one of the minor prophets. And I'm struck by the fact that he was not in Jerusalem. He was not a counselor to the wise and powerful. He was a shepherd and he cared for fig trees. That was his gig. He was way out in the countryside, and yet if you read the first two chapters of Amos, he talks about modern-day Syria, and then Jordan, and then Gaza, and then Israel. He, feel, he knows that the Lord has spoken to him about whole nations, but he's a shepherd. Because God is indiscriminate, and he looks for those who will carry things in their hearts, who will carry a city in their heart, and love a city, and pray for a city. And the same with the nation. So promises come for us as individuals, they come for us as church community, but they will come for cities and they will come for nations as well. And here's what we need to remember, that promises are often followed by long periods of difficulty and delay, and then quick fulfillment, long periods of difficulty and delay. Joseph had spent the last 13 years in captivity, whether in Potiphar's household or in prison. You know, it meant that he got out of bed on 4,700 mornings with no sign of change in his situation or fulfillment of his God-given dreams. When he got up on the day that everything changed, there was nothing different about it. The sun didn't rise on the other side of the sky. It was just a regular day. The monotony of everyday life had almost certainly stolen the sense of expectation which we can carry. And yet a day came when everything changed. Joseph had got up that morning in his rat-infested cell and he'd rolled up his mat on the floor. He went to bed that night in the opulence of the regent's palace. Breakfast would have been daily prison gruel. I wonder what dinner was served in Pharaoh's palace, no doubt with the best wine from Pharaoh's cellar. 
he had not followed, Joseph had not followed the normal promotion path of someone working in the Egyptian civil service. He went from prison to palace in a moment. And if you'll forgive a personal uh, illustration of that, uh, I spent the first 10 years of my church ministry serving in the county town in which I was raised, which was a privilege to do. But my heart was always to be in a city, in the cities, particularly this city, but <laughs> at times any city would do. And I remember being asked by two of those who had spiritual authority in my life, the equivalent of bishops, they said to me, David, would you and Philippa, would we move to Birmingham and start a new church there, the second city of our land? And I remember thinking of all sorts of reasons why that wasn't actually a good idea, not least a guy had just gone full-time serving with me in the church and it, three days before that request. And he'd said to me, David, just want to be clear, there's one reason why I'm doing this, why I'm leaving my job to work for the church, it's to work with you. And I remember thinking, if I leave now, he'll kill me. Uh, how could I do that? And so I sort of put it on the back burner, but I mentioned it to my senior leadership team when we met later that week. I just opened the meeting with, oh, I had the most strange experience the other day. So-and-so asked me whether I'd moved to Birmingham. Quick as a flash, the guy opposite me interrupted. He said, that's what I think you should do. You should move to Birmingham. Why don't you move to Birmingham? And all I can say is it was like the air changed. You could feel the presence of God come down. The agenda went out the window. And all we talked about all evening was, should we move to Birmingham? And within a short while, that's exactly what we had done. And everything had changed. After 10 years of ministry, feeling locked in in one place, suddenly it all changed. Promises often have long periods of delay. And I just want to appeal to you, Christchurch London Central Service, whether you're here in the room or whether you're uh, online this morning, that whatever last couple of years you've had, and they've been difficult for all of us in different ways, and we're all living with some level of post minor post-traumatic stress or whatever it is at this point in time, I want to appeal to you. Do not forget the things that God has put in our hearts. Because we bear fruit by spiritual means. This is the way that God gets his will done on earth. Or one of the key ones at the very least. Final thing to say about promises and then uh, two or three other comments to make. The fulfillment of promises is not always what we've been expecting. In other words, when God starts to bring these things about, you might get a surprise. So you need to be alert. I don't think that uh, Joseph, as he went to Pharaoh's palace, thought, this is it. My dreams are coming true. Remember what his dreams were? His dreams were that his family, who are way over there in a different nation, are going to bow down to him. How does this help that he is no longer in prison, but in Pharaoh's palace? It doesn't look at first glance that God is really at work here. And whilst we had, just to finish the story uh, that I was telling the personal one was we had a wonderful five years in Birmingham. And it was memorable for all the right reasons. I can say that we never expected to live in that city. And I remember moving there and thinking, what a surprise. I'd never expected this to be part of my life. Well, of course, we can all relate to that in different ways. But do not be surprised if God's work in your life as he starts to fulfill your promises doesn't look quite as, it, as you expect it to. He has his ways. So the final question that I want to ask is this. What are the qualities that God wants to work in your life and in my life during the waiting period? The waiting is one of the hardest parts of the Christian life. 
because it's about waiting and keeping your heart in a good place. It's waiting and not becoming cynical, not becoming sarcastic, not becoming disappointed. And there are three things that Pharaoh identifies that are in Joseph's life that I think had not been before. In verse 33, Pharaoh says this. Now let Pharaoh, sorry, Joseph says to Pharaoh, now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Three things in those two verses. There is discernment, there is wisdom, and there is the fullness of the spirit. And I want to suggest that whilst we wait, and maybe you feel like you're in prison at the moment, or you're in the equivalent of Potiphar's household, or you don't know where you are, I want to suggest that there's three things for us to learn. Discernment, wisdom, and the fullness of the Spirit. Let's just look at each of those briefly. Discernment, what's discernment? Discernment in the Bible is the ability to tell right from wrong. It's to, the, the ability to tell the, uh, the, the good from the counterfeit, the bad, bad man from the good man, and so on. And Joseph exercised this discernment, firstly, with people. There are two people in this story who were good news for Joseph. We've all known leaders in different parts of our lives who do well with capable people. And we know others who close down capable people. Well, Potiphar, the first boss that Joseph had, was clearly one of those who was like, I like quality. I like good people. And when he saw Joseph and he saw him working well, he said, hey, have more. You don't threaten me. You help me. Have more. And so Joseph got more responsibility. We find the same when Joseph was in prison. The captain of the guard was a good man, a good leader. Have more, Joseph. If you can do that well, then you get more. But there was one person in Joseph's life who was bad news. And this was Pharaoh's wife. Because she was intent on getting Joseph to bed with her if she possibly could. She was, in this story, the seductress. And as the Bible is very clear what we do with those that seek to seduce us, which is basically run. Get out. And that is what Joseph does. He removes himself. He still has a difficult time, but that is what he should do. So this, his discernment was exercised over the leaders in his life. How do we exercise discernment? I want to suggest you first exercise discernment. I exercise discernment in terms of the friends that we choose. The friends that we choose. You see, my conviction is that the people that we spend the most time around are the people that we become like. So my question is, do you want to become like your friends? Fast forward 10 years. Do you want to be like them? If not, my recommendation is choose some different friends. You can't choose your family. God's given you them. You've got to make the most of your family, okay? Whether you like them or not. But you can choose your friends. And I want to suggest we love our family, choose our friends. And allow yourself to be surrounded by people who will do you good as a result. So if we're to exercise discernment with our friends, we're also to exercise discernment with our leaders. It's not infrequent in professional life that we get an opportunity to choose our mentors, our team leaders, or those we can work with. And being with the right people does us good. And being with those that aren't clearly doesn't. The other area I would suggest we need to exercise discernment is in the church. We now have an abundance of teaching. You don't, at one point in time, the only teaching that we got on a, at church was on a Sunday. 
But now, of course, we can get it every day of the week. There are podcasts, and there is Christian TV, and there's Christian radio, and there's a plethora of Christian paperbacks. And you may not be surprised that, in my opinion, they are not all good. It's a mixed bag. But how do we exercise discernment? How do you tell what the good stuff is from the not good stuff? Let me just suggest very briefly four questions to ask when you're really captured on a podcast or on a television program or something, um, and you just think, wow, this sounds amazing, but is it right? First question, very simply, is it biblical? Now, forgive me if this is, you know, sort of 2101. Is it biblical? I remember falling into this trap myself as a, uh, in my later teens when I was given a book. Actually, one day when I was sick by a family member, it was an amazing book. And the experiences that this author had had were extraordinary. And he basically told you all his experiences and then he extrapolated truths from them. And I remember I just read the whole thing. When I was better, I went to my pastor and said, have you read this book? It's amazing. He said, yes, I have read this book. He said, I'm interested that you found it amazing. He said, let me ask you a question. He said, do you think that the things that this guy concludes are from the Bible or just from his own experience? And has he put them on the same authority as the Bible? And as soon as he asked that question, I thought, oh, David, you stupid, stupid boy. Because I basically got so wowed by the experiences that I'd never asked, is it in the Bible? And I think that's very easy to do. It's either so pers per persuasive or it gets our emotions at a certain level. And we just go, that's got to be right. I want to, uh, I want to encourage all of us to have a default mode, which is, is it in the Bible? Read the Bible enough to know whether it is or to learn that and then to think that. Secondly, is the amount of emphasis on it biblical? The scripture has lots to say about some things and a little to say about other things. And I think we should maintain that sort of balance. Has a lot to say about caring for those in need, about becoming a disciple, about worship, about the role of the local church. But there are other things it just has a little bit to say on. Don't get them mixed up. Just occasionally in church life, there's someone I can see them coming towards me and I know what we're going to talk about before we've even started the conversation. Do you know why? Because that's all they ever talk about. And sometimes you think, if you got so excited about this and lost your excitement about Jesus in the process, we need to keep the balance right. Thirdly, does it glorify God or does it glorify man? I think we've all had the experience of looking at something or listening to something, and it sounds great, but there's just this uneasy feeling that it's actually more about the person than about the person they're talking about. That's the feeling I just want to encourage us to be careful. And finally, does it recognize the role of the local church? Christians can get to be involved in lots of things, and lots of them are good things. But I just want to remind us all that this is the warp and woof. This is the heart of Christian life. Working out Christian community and discipleship and all those sorts of things. The challenging as well as the glorious things about the Christian life is where the Christian life starts and where it should end in the local church. So we're to learn discernment. Secondly, we're to learn wisdom. What's wisdom in the Bible? Wisdom is just the really practical stuff. It's how to thrive as a single person. It's how to, uh, how to do well as a married couple. It's how to manage our finances. It's how to choose a career. I'll give you an example of the practical nature of biblical wisdom. Two men 
are being chased by a bear. As they are running, one of the men stops, undoes his backsack, takes out some running spikes and puts his running spikes on. The other guy who is now ahead of him shouts. He says, why are you doing that, you fool? You can't outrun a bear. And the answer, the response by the guy in the running spikes, he said, I don't have to. I just need to outrun you. Now, that is an example of biblical wisdom. It's real practical stuff of how to do well in our lives. Thank you, Nate. At least somebody appreciated that in this room. Uh, how do we get wisdom? Well, <laughs> Proverbs says that the beginning of that, that fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. What's the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is living privately by myself in the same way as living before each other. That's what the fear of the Lord is. I remember learning the fear of the Lord early uh, in my teens. I was, um, I was still, a, I was a, a mad cricket fan as a teenager. Now, just bear with me for those of you who have instantly taken a dislike either to me or my sport at this point in time. We weren't allowed to play cricket in the back garden because of all the windows that we'd broken uh, over one particularly fruitful summer. Uh, and so we'd been cast into the wilderness of the concrete drive at the front of the house to play. And my brother and I had been told, you can play your cricket there, but if the ball goes into the next-door neighbor's garden, you must go and ask permission before you get the ball. I saw the reasonableness of that. But when the ball's gone into the next-door neighbor's garden six times before 10 o'clock in the morning, it's just awkward to knock on the door. So my brother bowls a sharp rising ball at me. I try and defend it. hits the corner of the bat. Goes not only into the next-door neighbor's garden, but over their gate into their back garden. I look around. There is no one in sight. I'm onto the wall, I'm onto the top of the gate, I'm over the gate, and I have my hand on the ball in no time at all. Lob the ball back, back onto the top of the gate, back onto the top of the wall, land back on my front drive. And as I land, my father comes through the side gate, and he just looks at me and he says, beware. He says, your sins will always find you out. <laughs> That's the fear of the Lord, is learning that what's in private will always get exposed in public in the end. And so we learn the fear of the Lord. It's the heart of wisdom. There's also five wisdom books in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And if you want wisdom, then read the wisdom books. Job teaches us how to suffer. Psalms teaches us how to worship. Proverbs, which teaches us how to act. Ecclesiastes, which teaches us how to enjoy life. And the Song of Songs, which teaches us how to make love. These are the books of life. They're earthy and real and helpful to living well. I want to encourage you to read them. You may want to start with Proverbs. It has 31 chapters. So there's one for every day of the month. Once you've read it like that, you'll also want to take it much more slowly because a lot of the verses are just showstoppers to just, oh, there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into that. But read them quickly as well. And read the whole book. And we get wisdom as we ask for it. For as James says, anyone who lacks wisdom should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So we're looking for discernment in these difficult times when it feels like you're in prison. We're looking for wisdom. We're, looking, we're learning the fear of the Lord. Live by myself as I live in public, reading the scriptures, and just watch out too for words of wisdom. Those moments where wisdom suddenly comes. We bought our first house in the 1980s. Apart from it being a long time ago, it was also at the 
uh, just before a big property crash. So the house that we owned fell in price by 50%. It was essentially unsellable as a result. We had one child and we were hoping for more. And we had a friend sitting in our living room, our tiny, it was a tiny two up, two down house. And I remember him pointing at Philippa who had Edward in, his in her arms and he was sort of real energetic kid, just sort of bouncing around, want to go out, don't want to keep talking. And he said, if you're going to get another one like that, meaning another energetic baby, he said, if you're going to get another one like that, you guys need to start to think about moving house. And Philippa laughed. Was not the laugh of faith. And she said, if you knew the situation that we were in, the 50% debt, she said, you wouldn't even be suggesting such things. And I mention this partly because I know that property is such a challenge for so many of us in terms of living in the city. Quick as a flash, he came back. He said, if you can trust God for houses for the poor, which by God's grace we've been able to do, he said, we can trust God for a house for yourself. And it was just the word of wisdom that we needed at that minute in time. I don't remember anything else about that conversation. In fact, he was visiting from the States. I don't remember anything else about that visit. I just remember that sentence. If you can trust God for houses for the poor, you can trust God for a house for yourself. Within six months, we had moved debt-free. God had spoken to us. So it's worth just waiting or looking for those words of wisdom as well as seeking the fear of the Lord and reading the scriptures and becoming wise. And finally, so we learn discernment, we learn wisdom, and finally we learn fullness of the Spirit. We learn fullness of the Spirit. In scripture, people are not simply filled with the Spirit of God to do things in church, as we know. It's not just for the spiritual things. In Exodus, God's Spirit is on the craftsman. Those are Heliab and Bezaliel who create the temple. At other times, God's Spirit enables warriors to be victorious in battle and, secure, and enables secular rulers to be wise. In other words, God wants to fill us with our spirit for whatever we do. It's tempting, I won't do it, but just I can see different professions. Just love to name them all. All these different professions, all these different roles, all require, actually, if we're going to do them at the best of our ability, to be full of the spirit. When we're full of the Spirit, firstly, you're joyful. I've never met someone who's full of the Spirit and down in the dumps. Who knows they work better when they're joyful to when they're down in the dumps. Get full of the Spirit. We also we work more effectively and we also live more contagiously when we're full of the Spirit too. So I want to encourage us all. Where we're waiting for the promises that God puts in our hearts. And the first thing to do is we have to recognize them. And have to acknowledge them. And come to some level of faith about them. But as we wait in the times of difficulty, in the times where it feels like life is getting smaller, when, in terms, when instead of advance it feels like we're going backwards, when we can't see any way through and everything seems shut up around us, that it's at those times that I want to encourage us to be learning discernment, to be learning wisdom, and to be trusting God to be full of the Spirit. Whether that is as individuals, or whether that is as a church, we've just been through that sort of time these last two years. Well done, everyone, for hanging on. And now we come out and we're trusting God again for the future. I'm so excited about that. Incidentally, on Wednesday, one of the things I want to share is something of a strategy going forwards. Okay, pandemic, we're trusting behind us. Church starting to regather once we're through Easter, where often a lot of people go away over Easter. Once we're back, what's the plan? What are we going to do? That's Wednesday night. Come if you possibly can. Uh, we'd love to share that with you then.
Uh, but for now, let's believe God for the promises he's given us, seeking discernment, wisdom, and the fullness of the Spirit. Let's stand together. If the band could come back, please. And let's pray. Let's pray, shall we? Let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. It's such a delight to be together. It's such a delight to have been drawn from all over the city to worship you together. I pray your blessing on us now. I thank you, Father, for those of us that have, um, that have promises in our hearts. I pray that even now, Father, Spirit of God, would you just come and rest on us? And if you have things to speak to different ones, I pray that you would do that. Just as we sing now and as we pray. I want to pray too for us individually and corporately that you teach us discernment. Teach us, Father, those that we're to be drawn to and those that we're not. I want to pray for wisdom. Teach us the fear of the Lord, we pray. And would you fill us with your spirit? Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, rest on us. Rest on us across this room now, I pray. In Jesus' name.